afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to Other Minds and Hands. Today, this is, as I should say, this is episode number 57. And today, Maggie and I are joined uh, by some really fun guests. Uh, we have the development team uh, for The Lord of the Rings Return to Moria with us here today. Um, so uh, uh, John Paul is the uh, is the, the, the director of the game. John, would you like to, uh, maybe you could introduce the other members of your team. Yeah, sure. Hi, everybody. I'm I'm John Paul Dumont. I'm the game director. Uh, I work at Free Range Games. We are the developer on Return to Moria. Uh, with us is Bradley Fulton, who is the art director on the project, uh, and Farah Khan, the um, narrative designer and head writer. Excellent. Excellent. So uh, for people, so, uh, yeah, I'm sure many people have heard about this. I've been hearing lots of things, uh, lots of great things. I was just in um, uh, uh, Denver at one of our conferences uh, and somebody you know, came up to me at lunchtime and he's like, I do nothing but play Return to Moria <laughs> these days. It's like I'm all about it. Um, I've been hearing lots of great things, um, and uh, so again, m many of you, of course, will have heard of it. But for for people who are new to the concept, uh, you know, why don't you just give a, a little brief description of Return to Moria and and what it's sort of about, what it's doing? Yeah, Return to Moria is a, a survival crafting game set in the fourth age of Middle Earth. So you. Uh, play as a dwarf who has answered the call of Gimli. This is about 70 years after the ring was destroyed. Um, and he has made a call to all of the dwarves across Middle-earth to come together and to go back into Moria and reclaim it as Khazad Doom. And then events transpire that make it not as easy as you thought it was going to be. Uh, and so that's where the survival and the crafting comes from is the you, you play either by yourself or up to eight players on PC. And that group of players, that group of dwarves, gets trapped inside Moria and has to figure out uh, what to do, how to get out, and along the way uncover mysteries that explain maybe the bad luck of the dwarves over the last thousand years, why it's not so easy to just walk right in, uh, and a whole lot of things that, that you discover as you play. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Um, yeah, so, um, the, 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 the frame that there are a couple really important and interesting things, I think that make this game such a fascinating, um, kind of departure from, uh, not only games, but, but even, you know, from really any adaptation that's been done of Tolkien so far. Um, the Rings of Power was interesting. The TV series was interesting because it was the first ever, what I call fill in the blanks adaptation, right? Where we're not just getting a retelling of Tolkien's major works, but we're getting stories within that world, consistent, you know, supposed to be working within that narrative, but, but, but doing its own thing and telling a story Tolkien never told in full. Um, you guys are doing that too, which is really exciting. But the two things that are different about what's happening in Return to Moria are first the time frame, right? That you're telling a fourth age story, which has never been done before. Um, not even Tolkien succeeded at that, <laughs> so so that's pretty cool. Um, and then secondly, um, the way that you guys are are really kind of investing in dwarves and dwarf culture, um, which is never. Yeah, you know, not that no one's ever done anything with dwarf culture before, but um, not usually the focal point. Right, exactly. Yeah. They've 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 been uh, uh, they've been sort of. Well, I don't want to say slighted because of course it starts with the book, right? I mean, we get Gimli, who is I don't want to call him a token dwarf, because that sounds too slighting, but like he's our solitary dwarf, right? Uh, the represent, you know, the the one representative of dwarf perspective and dwarf culture, and um, obviously we get more dwarves in the Hobbit, of course, but in the Lord of the Rings. Gimli's it from one end 
to the next, right? Um, and so a lot of, especially Lord of the Rings fans, um, learn more about the dwarves in, you know, the end of Appendix A and, you know, would love to learn more. You know, they, they certainly, the dwarves have been a, a fascinating frontier. So there's a sense in which you're not only doing a fill-in-the-blank story in terms of narrative, right? You know, uh, writing a story in Tolkien's world that Tolkien didn't write. But you're also doing like a world building fill in the blank, essentially, where you're doing a whole bunch of world building, which Tolkien never explicitly did. Um, so that's a that's a, a double challenge and, a, you know, a, a, my opinion, from an adaptation standpoint, really kind of a double point of interest. Um, what are some things that you guys just like sort of experiences that you had, just kind of thinking about the challenges that come along with those two things? Um, what are some things that you guys um, were sort of finding along the way or kind of ways that you, you know, guidelines that you set, you know, for yourselves and stuff for managing that? Yeah, why don't I take kind of a high level and I think Bradley can talk about the sort of how we depicted the world and Farah could get into some of the history we had to flesh out. Um, I mean, we got to the fourth age and dwarves. We started with Lord of the Rings and what would be the right survival crafting for Lord of the Rings. And of course, it sort of just hit us like a thunderbolt that, that dwarves was the right answer being mm -hmm. survivors and crafters almost straight from <laughs> right. Professor Tolkien's words. Um, and, and from there, we, we looked at, well, first we always knew we wanted to be lore forward, that we mm -hmm. wanted to be true to the books, um, even if that would cause us some issues uh, down the road. Um, but the main sources we had for information were The Hobbit, The Council of Elrond, the Moria, the three Moria chapters in mm -hmm. Fellowship and Appendix A. And then a little bit that Gimli sprinkles throughout, although when you go back and really start to mine things that he said, probably the Glittering Caves, the Aglaron section yes. Yes. Um, after Helm's Deep, that's kind of it. The rest is like flavor and contrast with Legolas and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, but those were the places that became our main focal points and where we drew almost almost everything from. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yes, from a yeah. from a visual standpoint, I think one of the really interesting challenges is that you know Tolkien's his descriptions are fairly light. His visual descriptions are fairly light. Like the time that the Fellowship spends um, under the mountain, you know, most of his descriptions are spent really kind of framing the scale of the space, right. and then the challenges that you know each of the each of the days of their journey. There's only a few places where he gets into some real kind of meaty detail about exactly what the space looks like. Um, and, and, and yet, you know, here we are in the 2020s um, and we all have a kind of a shared sense of what dwarvish stuff is and dwarvish stuff looks like. And one of the really interesting things about that is that a lot of that is material that's been added after the fact by people who are, you know, creating their own interpretations of Tolkien. And that kind of, that kind of material gets sort of passed on, you know, hand to hand to the next people to come along. And, and right. yet at the same time, you know, we, we wanted to directly engage with the source material. So um, it, it was a really interesting challenge to try to take kind of what we know instinctively as dwarvish stuff, right? you know, dwarvish visual culture, whether it be their architecture or their, you know, the style of dress. And then, but then try to inject some fresh ingredients mm -hmm. so that it feels both authentic um, and, and original. Um, and we really kind of tried to tackle that on two fronts, one, the space, and then also just their, their props, the things they made, since it's a crafting game. Yes. 
Yeah. You know, Bradley, great to hear you bring that up because that's such a, a complex um, navigation to try to do, right? When you're, uh, because you're not just, you're not just dealing with the source text. You're dealing with the source text and all the adaptations that came before, of course, especially the Peter Jackson films, um, as iconic as those have been for so many years. Um, and so, and I mean, and I, I think a lot of the reactions, not by any means all, but many of the reactions that people were having, for instance, to the Rings of Power was really less, this doesn't, this doesn't match what Tolkien says in the books and more, this doesn't look and feel exactly like the Peter Jackson movies do. And so it strikes me as wrong because that's what I've, you know, so, but, and like, how do you, how do you, you know, manage those kinds of expectations? How do you, how do you walk that line that you were describing between like, we don't just want to make it completely detach it because we want it to feel familiar. And yet you don't, you know, it's, it's not like the aesthetic chosen, um, you know, for uh, around dwarves and Casa doom is the only one possible to choose and is now a law for the rest of time. Right. So, so yeah, that's right. a, that's a, it's, it's a huge challenge. Right. It's a, uh, one of the, the interesting, one of the interesting wrinkles of adaptation is adapting the stories to the medium mm -hmm. uh, so if we were for instance simply fleshing out the fourth age in writing we'd be able to match the the tone the style the pace and the cadence from the books because it's one-to-one -one, medium to medium you know ring of power had to adapt for television and a modern television audience and we had to adapt for a video game audience and a particular kind of video game interaction and so um, we always had to look at it of, as did, are we trying to be very true to a, an actual physical space and an actual history that the professor laid out? Or are we trying to be true to the tone and the feel and the, the attempt to tell a fairy and myth story? And where, when those two things collide, do we make a choice? Right. Uh, and so it, it's a... Uh, the medium itself really does affect how you try to adapt something. Yeah, yeah so there's a when you talk about adaptation, there's a the real focus is really about the experience of the audience, and every audience is different depending on the medium. So for a video game, it's like it's it's a an immersive in a different kind of way, you know. So their players are exploring and finding these little tidbits rather than us necessarily telling them the story or the you know the history or something like that so and how they find things when they find things will differ between each player as well so trying to find those moments of of sharing that information and how it's shared as well it, it plays into a lot of um, when we're thinking about adaptation yeah it is so Maggie go ahead you I was just saying, and you've said that it's very lore forward, which we've certainly seen amongst the Tolkien community, how impressed everyone is with the use of the lore in it. What's your background in relation to the lore? Were you guys coming at it from knowing all of the minute detail and wanting to include all of this and, and make it discoverable? Because that's kind of what it feels like, that you, you know the story that you want them to discover, but you're planting those seeds, hoping that they find that one because that one's real good, you know? Uh, yeah, you know, in, in terms of background, I think we, like everybody that is in the fandom, comes to it in so many different ways. I mean, for me, um, I read the books when I was a kid, uh, read them again when I knew the movies were coming out in 2000, and then have 
read them many times since, which many of us could claim to. Uh, but this is my third Lord of the Rings game that I've worked on. Um, I was uh, a combat designer on Lord of the Rings The Third Age. Then there was an EA role-playing game that, that unfortunately didn't get out to audiences. And I, I was a content design and lore master for that team. Uh, and so I had to like really immerse myself in that and have a lot of scrutiny of that team. And I wish that work could have gotten out because it was, it was a fun idea. Uh, and then went on a long gap where I always wanted to get back to work in a Lord of the Rings game. So when this opportunity came up, I, I jumped right into it. But, um, you know, so that that's kind of my my history with it. I think Far and Bradley have a different one. Um, we also did part of the license agreement with Middle Earth Entertainment was to bring on experts um, and to help us. And that every member of the team had to read the books, <laughs> uh, which we enforced very strictly. We had a book club every week and we went through everything and we were pulling little bits apart. And at this which point, I've probably read be... those. Sorry, you think that'd be step one for most adaptations, but no, no. <laughs> no we had two book clubs. So like we ran through one and we ran through the um, books with one group of people and then we ran it again because the project went as long as it did. So we're able to go through the books again with whoever else wanted to join or if there was new people that might have um, joined the project at that point or just wanted to go over it again. Like I certainly was in both book clubs. And then I poured through the Tom Shippey books, you know, everything I could get my hands on to try to shove into my head uh, to help. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, same with you, Bradley. Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, the the first time I read the books was a little bit later in life than I think a lot of people sort of my nerd stripe. It was later, it was in co the college years. Mm -hmm. um, but at the time, even, it was pretty, like there was sort of like an awakening of like, Oh, that's where all this stuff comes from. <laughs> yes. You know, there's like, this is the found, this is the bedrock of just this kind of fantasy nerddom, you know, writ large. Right. Um, and so for me, the, you know, working on this game, but also working, working on this segment of the world that he created and sort of the world building that the game demanded was like, this is one of those sort of bucket list kind of things, you know, that, that it, it marries. The motivations the reasons why i got excited about making video games to begin with with the source material that's like the inspiration for everything the richest um, you can yeah you know I, I i joked about the double-edged sword of being lore forward um far and i ran into an issue in our first uh play test was over a year ago at this point where we had so immersed ourselves in the world and the lore um, that so what happens in the game is is uh, you know Gimli and his group are trying to get into the front door the door of Durin they can't they don't really know why so they decide to go to a, a sort of drastic measure and that drastic measure backfires on them and then your character gets blocked and so the very first thing that we thought players would do in the game Far and I were like well of course what would you try to do you try to get to the door of Durin and that would be east of here and so or west of here uh, and so they're going to immediately go west. And so we just figured everybody playing the game would have an encyclopedic knowledge of where right. uh, where they were on the mountain and where the door would be and how to get there. And and of course they'd see this giant staircase and say, oh, well, this is where the fellowship was after the Watcher. And so we realized, oh, we went too far. Too deep. Um, and we assumed, we, you know, we wanted to make a game like for fans, by fans, but we went so far that there was going to be a very small number of people that actually knew how to navigate the space. And so we had to... We had to back it up a little bit and start making it a little, you know, telling you what to do a little bit, but also maybe loosening up what players could do early in the game. Yeah, that was my next question. Like, how do you deal with that? Because obviously they're not all lore masters. So 
you know, how do you make it appeal to the generic audience that's never read a Tolkien text? They just might know that trailer of The Hobbit or whatever. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, that's an excellent question. I think um, you try to stay true to the things that um, make the story exciting to begin with. You know, dwarves are very interesting characters. Um, and uh, it, it was another reason why they were just a particularly good selection um, for this. You know, I said, it was a survival crafting game. That part came first. They're like, well, who would be the, the, the protagonist of such a game? Like, that comes naturally. Um, and also, you know, the way that Tolkien kind of uses, um, you know, each of the, the groups within, each of the peoples of Middle-earth as kind of an expression of some aspect of humanity. You know, dwarves make a very interesting aspect of humanity. In some ways, they're kind of like a foil for hobbits. Um, you know, right. they're sort of the industrious side. Right, right. Um, and you know, that also married really well with a, a, a co-op, you know, multiplayer game where, you know, players tend to kind of goof around. So you lean into that, you lean into the dwarvishness, and you will find that um, it'll be something that's just very accessible and, and resonates with players. Yeah, yeah. For me, it was, I, I I took a step back and was like trying to focus on, as a player, as an audience, just telling a good story at its core. You know, that's, that's what we want to do. Even in the, a game medium, we want to tell a good story that fits the world of Professor Tolkien. So with that, what, one of the things I had done even before joining this project, because I just like to see people's reactions to the Lord of the Rings movies, and I get fascinated with like new people coming into watching the movies, what kind of things that they react to, what kind of things gets them excited, what things they pick up. So I had already watched a few like reaction videos of people watching the Lord of the Rings movies and just seeing the things that they were getting that they were picking up so it's like how can we incorporate that level of excitement and enjoyment for a new audience that is not aware of the lord of the rings at all mm -hmm. yeah no it is uh, uh one of our viewers nameless arcanum was just uh asking you know how much did you factor in players who are gonna just like skip the lore entirely um you know how do you how do you how do you engage with them as well as you know the sort of deep divers yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you know, the, this particular kind of game that we tried to tell, uh, or the story we tried to tell within the context of the game, I think you, you hit on it where so much of it is world building and just making sure that the world was built consistently, uh, that there's little bits you can pick up. But uh, with the exception of kind of the early part, the end of the game, and little bits of what push you forward, you could ignore the whole loreness if you wanted to and just play through the progression loops of moving into a new area upgrading your stuff uh, going into a harder area and um, you know with, with a team our size which wasn't a big triple a game you know there's um, there are teams out there that are selling their game for $70 and they spent six times the amount of money uh, we did where they can do lots and lots of fancy cutscenes, rendered cutscenes, in-game stuff have lots of dialogue lots of NPCs we knew we had to really focus in on a couple of key things. So we wanted to make sure that if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, that you would immediately feel like, oh, this feels familiar, but it's something new. It's not a retelling. Uh, and we wanted to make sure that the progression of the game felt very natural, that you just kind of got in and you got into a zone and, and started playing. And those were the two places that we really had to focus. And then over the course of the next year and beyond, 
as we continue to add and update the game, um, that's where I think we can layer in even more stuff for anybody, not just people that love Lord of the Rings. But we knew we want, if we, if we only hit one thing, it was, if you like this kind of game and you like Lord of the Rings, this is the game for you. And we, I think we hit that mark. Mm -hmm. And then, like I said, as a small team, we get to grow into the other areas uh, where we can improve. I think also um, just uh, one more point about the lore, how we deliver lore to players who maybe aren't going to search it, search it out um, or stop to read, you know, the copious amounts of kind of background material that we sprinkle throughout the game. Um, and that's the songs, um, you know, that singing is an important mechanic in this game um, for, you know, maintaining your, your, your stamina and your energy when you're mining and doing a number of other activities. Um, and the songs are all ways of packaging up you know, small bits of lore and then telling it through something that's just in, in, inherently entertaining in its own right. Um, and so everyone's going to get at least that level of kind of engagement with the with the lore of the game. Yeah, yeah. I remember I was so excited when I found out that singing was going to not only, like not only just, there wasn't just going to be music, but like that singing was going to be a mechanic. I was like, oh man, there we go. <laughs> it's real now. <laughs> it's, yeah, that is, it, is, it is so much fun. Um yeah, yeah, that is awesome. Um, and yeah, I mean, you, you can see how some of the, you know, you talk about how, you know, you enable, you know, players to, you know, advance and, you know, build things and do stuff. And they don't have to care, particularly. Like when you move into a new area and the new, like, relics that you're finding and stuff that you're working with is like remnants of the old dwarf houses from the Blue Mountains, refugees of whom moved to Moria. Like, you don't have to know that or you don't have to care about that. But if you do, it's pretty cool when, when you when you're like, hey, this this is from like the dwarves of Belagost. OK, right. I see where we are now. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really fun to, to see how that stuff can get kind of overlaid. And yet again, not uh, not just be so totally immersed that it's not going to be, you know, that like it, it, it depends upon you having that level of geekiness. And I also think it's that level of geekiness that resonates so well with the fandom that makes something last longer, you know, mm -hmm. like if you were just doing the occasional little blip to try to tick the box, like everybody's going to figure that out real quick. So the fact that you do kind of do the deep dive and you allow that lore to be in all the places if people want to engage with it, that's what I think makes these things last longer. People mm -hmm. are going to keep engaging with it because it's as engaging as the original. So yeah. Tip my hat. <laughs> I mean, like, part of it is that, like, so much of that already exists, and we're just kind of tapping into it and, like, expanding upon it. And, like, so it was an opportunity to just find those little connections for the dwarves. You know, you, I think, uh, Corey, earlier you mentioned that, you know, this, it is a fourth age story and you know we haven't really had much story from the dwarves perspective so here we have an opportunity to find those little nuggets and kind of resurface them and make connections that might not have been very clear and you know maybe there are players that are not aware of the lore that are not as interested in the lore and we're hoping that i at least i'm hoping that you know if they find a nugget of information they'll be like oh that's really interesting now i want to go back and read more about it i want to go find out more about it i'm going to start diving into it as well yeah, and I think that, you know, the ways in which um, within the game you can discover there, you know, there's so many different like, archaeological layers, right, of uh, of 
story that you can discover history right that you can discover as you as you go through right you know from uh the evidence of the fellowships passing through right at the end of the third age to you know gandalf was there and did something there right before aragorn was there and did something there before and um and then of course balin's uh uh you know whole expedition and what were they doing and you know uh, the, more of the circumstances of their uh, of their destruction, but then of course, and then the ancient Casa Doom stuff. But there are layers there too, right? There's like, you know, Casa uh, Doom as it was like, you know, in its final stages before its fall, and then the more ancient Casa Doom, you know, underneath that, and like the time with the refugees, right at the end of the first age and beginning of the second age, and then all the way back to to Durin the First himself, and 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 his original. Um, you know, like activities and plans and things. So there, it's 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 uh, it's really neat how again Moria is just such a golden opportunity, right, to present this sort of a situation where and again and all of that, you know, if you have somebody who's not who doesn't care like who's there like they're just they want to you know they want to they want to build they want to have fun building stuff and and uh, uh, you know uh, developing. Because um, you know, the, the the whole progression of I'm starting from scratch and I'm going to eventually be, you know, finding ways to forge mithril stuff is like that's pretty cool, right? You know, to to be able to and then to to be able to build stuff. I know that there are many people who are and I am sure will be interested in the game as like really awesome, you know, like Minecraft in Middle Earth, basically, you know, um, and that's really cool too. But if you are interested in the lore, you know there's all of that. There's all of that stuff to be found and it's and discovered. And I think it's pretty. Yeah, uh, it's pretty cool. So if I can ask, just like procedurally, how did you start doing this? Like, what was your step one of like creating the outline and then the bullet points of of story? Which you know I would think that would be a fire question, but it's probably all of you, isn't it? Of just filling in all of those those spaces to build out this story. Well, it's really started with John Paul. I kind of came into it once he, they had already somewhat of a structure of the story of what they wanted to tell. So I'll let John Paul go first, Bradley. <laughs> yeah, you know, it. it um, I think when when Bradley and I were on the project from from the very beginning, and we knew we wanted to do dwarves, and one of the things that I felt like, especially from my prior experience, was. I didn't want to tell the same story that we've seen before. So we had talked about, well, where could we set it? What kind of narrative or environment could we have? We talked about like the fall of Erebor or even rebuilding of Erebor. We talked about the founding of one of the mountains. We thought about being just total sandbox and no story and just your dwarves in the mountain. But I think we kept coming back to just Moria. The word Moria, it's a scary place. And so then we thought, okay, well, what's a Moria story that would have stakes? Because that's the thing, you take away the ring, then what are the stakes? And so we thought, well, it could have been, because it could have been the founding, it could have been Balin's company. We thought about that, but you know where it goes. And that's where we kind of went back to to Middle Earth Entertainment was like, what do you guys think about the fourth age? You know, he talks about them going back. That would be stakes really high for, for the people. And so once we got that all aligned, that was something that was that was good for us to start playing with, then that was when we can start layering in all right well how do we get you inside is it you know is is during the seventh just there and you're starting from him or even playing him is it something else and a lot of it came down to the genre really 
feels good when you kind of start sort of naked and alone and, and in danger. And so we had to figure out what would be an inciting incident that would get you to the point where you're in danger and then you need to face uh, Morian. So that was kind of the starting point for what the story could be. Uh, but the, a lot of the first half of the first year, I think, was really the world building. What would be on the west side? What would be on the east side? Is it one big city all the way? What's already been fleshed out that we know of? Um, where would be the mithril loads? So a lot of it was starting to construct a map that would make sense for us. Uh, and then, and Bradley could probably speak to this, how can we make sure you're not just in a dusty, dark cave for a hundred hours of play? <laughs> right, uh, right. Which is which was the fellowship's experience, right? I mean, right. right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so we we kind of uh, this is a, an approach that you might take um, in, in in many different kinds of video games, but you want to you want to kind of lay out you know the starting point for the art direction of the world, but then you start with a lot of inspirational concept and bring on a team of concept artists. And what we what we did is just laid out the world kind of in sequential order, whether or not that's the order the players are actually going to experience it. Mm -hmm. But especially in the beginning, when you're really trying to you know hook people and get them to understand the the parameters of this world um you know the first thing we knew we wanted to do was hit you with this is the moria you know yeah, but yeah. you can now look left and right you know you you couldn't do that when you were reading the book you couldn't do that when you were watching the movie they had a goal they had to go 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 and and there was the story required them to be at certain points in the in the under the mountain in, at certain times but you're going to have freedom to move and so you know fleshing out, you know, stage right and stage left. And then once we give that to you in that 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 beginning period, that early zone where you're getting your feet, maybe you've never played a survival crafting game before, and we're gonna throw you some challenges, you know, just basic stuff, um, you know, shelter, food, etc. Then we're gonna throw you a curveball. And we're gonna show you something that you didn't expect to see under the mountain. Um, and not to spoil anything, I'm sure it's been seen, but that's where the Elven Quarter comes in. And that was that was part of us trying to like, was our first opportunity to to think about uh, Cause of Doom as a setting and go back to the Second Age and, you know, try to pull in some of these threads. And, you know, uh, if somebody has only a passing familiarity with Middle Earth, they might not know the degree to which um, Elves and Dwarves might have been friends. They might not have expected to see them cohabiting. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the exchange, you know, um, one little anecdote, you know, the, the furniture that you'll find, the ruined furniture of ancient Kazadun you'll find, um, a lot of it is wooden. And wooden wood is an elvish material, you know, from a from a dwarvish perspective, it's an elvish material. And in some ways, it's like a luxury good, right? They had to trade for that wood. Um, and one of the things that comes with that is elvish style. And so that was something we tried to do in, you know, creating the concepts for those things, is that there's this kind of fusion between dwarf and elf. Mm -hmm. um, but but that you know it's the whole rest of the world building kind of plays out in that same way, sort of thinking like, okay, you experience this now, what's next? And each each next thing, you know, is another ninety degree turn that takes you. you no, know, you get to the mines, you know, the concept art that you've got behind you, Corey. You get to the mines, and you're like, ah, that's right. This is here's how big this mountain is, and it's also not a place. I mean, it's a place I'm explored to. I'm, I'm excited to explore as a player, but as a dwarf, I'm a little nervous. Right. about the dangers that I'm going to face, you know. Right. Um, and then carry on until the until the we get to the other side of the mountain. Yeah. 
And to, to bring Far in, I mean, one of the things that we had to do once we had the idea of the layout of the world and we knew we wanted to tell an adventure story, uh, we had to start to figure out, we had to kind of answer some things. And that's where Far kind of jumped in, which is what happened in the year between the Balrog's emergence and the evacuation of Khazad-dûm? Why did they stick around for a year in that way? Um, and then, you know, how does that relate to why Durin hasn't come back? Uh, and we had to start to form some opinions. And Corey, this was something you helped us with, was what was the philosophy, the spiritualness of the dwarves? What do the dwarves actually believe about, whether it's, you know, quote, true, Right. What do the dwarves believe about themselves? Why do they exist? Um, what is their role and why would they stay in this place? And so that's, a, you know, what were each Durin? And so um, that was a lot of what, what Farah helped us kind of write and flesh out. Yeah, I jumped in thinking about those things as if I was almost writing like a history book. Like mm -hmm. if I was a dwarf and I was going back to Casa Doom as an architectural exercise or an archeological exercise rather, and trying to figure out like what were like what is the history of you know the belief systems of the dwarves of like why did they come to um Casa Doom in the first why did the first during come to Casa Doom in the first place like why what how do we tie that in to what is actually underneath the mountains how do we tie that into some of the mysteries that I don't want to spoil it right now but like some of the mysteries that we have included in the game like oh I try to tie it in as like you know if the dwarves believe that this is their home and that is and this is why during the deathless first came here there needs to be a, a reason not just you know he saw a reflection in the in the lake of you know the the crown and whatnot like i, I want to give it a little bit more so we started digging into that and it's how do we tie it into the mysteries that we do have so we're not just making things up for the sake of making things up or you know uh, extrapolating ideas for no reason like it, we wanted to tie it in very closely to what was happening with the dwarves in Casa Doom at every stage of the history that we do know yes. and then we can fill in the gaps as we go so yeah but then we was like discussing like well why was the other Durans like why were they why did they appear when they did appear what were their beliefs um and you know just going into those levels of uh history essentially and their belief systems and then like then trying to think about like okay well where in Casa Doom in these locations that we've already set out where do we showcase some of that how far did they go and like how where can we kind of resurface some of that information like you know have Nain we mentioned like you know they evacuated like a year later and it was after Nain's death mm -hmm. so like how can we firstly make it a much more traumatic dramatic kind of moments as a dwarf revisiting that scene and then also how does it tie into the larger dwarven story yeah yeah i i just love the way <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I just love the way, like the, the kinds of questions that you're leaning into. Like that yeah. seems to me, just like at the heart of what makes adaptation so much fun. It's um, the right path coming from adaptation people. This yeah. is the right path that you have followed. <laughs> one, of, one of my most, uh, one of my favorite sort of, I don't want to call it Easter egg, but little touches that really involves Bradley and Farah um, uh, collaborating together is. There are moments in the game where you find a statue to one of the Durans. Yes. And and you can sit, you rebuild it and you sing it. And there's two touches to that that goes to Farah's work as an archaeologist and an anthropologist of, of Khazad-dum, which is that the verse 
So you, you don't find them in order. You don't find Durin one statue and then Durin second statue. You find them out of order, and the order you find them correspond to the verse from Gimli's Song of Durin, and each statue actually reflects the time uh, of what was going on. So you yes. actually start with a very proud Durin the first, but he was a builder, he wasn't adorned. Then you get to Durin the second, and he's adorned as a king with the crown. And by the time you get to Durin the sixth, he's holding the crown because he's almost not holding his head high anymore uh, because they, they're not at the height anymore. And so there, there's this, that whole thing, it's very subtle, uh, yeah. but I, I just love that little nuance of uh, by the time you get to the ash, you know, the, the forges fire is ashen and cold, that's the during the sixth verse. That's the, he's, the Balrog took them, everything is lost uh, kind of verse. Yeah. It's funny, John Paul, it's funny you mentioned that because that's exactly what I was thinking of while Pharaoh was talking. Um, it's my favorite piece of concept art. You guys, so I, I, I didn't say this at the beginning, probably should have done, uh, that, I, I, that I, I was consulting with you guys during the thing. I know like sometimes I'm like asking questions as an interviewer and sometimes I'm talking about my own experience with it too. Um, so anyway, I, I'm not trying to like pull a fast one on anybody or conceal that fact. Um, but I remember during the process, it was the fa my favorite piece of concept art that you guys showed me um, was that the the statues the concept art for, for the statues of the six durins um, and it was I, I mean I, I could I could teach like a two-hour class on that image like just kind of going through and like what it suggests about the um, you know the history of Casa doom and where we can see it and, and thinking about the correlation with the with the poem and stuff oh man it is um, and, and your yeah. your involvement I mean one thing I want to mention is that that um, I knew because I followed your your podcast and and uh, I've been joking with you since we made contact because uh, the whole first year of the project I would watch your weekly series and like at some point I got to talk to this guy, um, <laughs> but in my head I was like, what's going to happen first? The exploring Lord of the Rings gets to Moria or the game ships? And and I'm shocked we beat you. You beat us, yeah. <laughs> we did. Not, not, I'm not shocked not, at all. Not by I'm that not much, but, but not by, by that it, much. That... I was like, oh, it's going to happen. Uh, but your involvement, just for I think people might think is interesting, is the whole first year we actually worked uh, with a fellow named T.S. Lucart who worked on uh, tabletop role-playing games in the Middle-Earth world and with David Salo, the language expert. So by the time we had brought you on, and, and I know Farah and I had talked about this, I was like, I don't I had made contact with you, but I, I, we we wanted to wait until we felt like we had the world and the story fleshed mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. So rather than you help us assemble the world, right. we wanted to have it and then put it in front of you as a um, you know a, a gauge of did we hit something that felt true to the tone, yeah, um, or was yeah. was crazy town because you know everyone has their own idea of what's <laughs> what's too far. And so that's when you came on. We handed you a full treatment, and we were like. Just please tell us, did we go too far? Does right. this feel right? right? Um, and then, you know, then we spent a year kind of talking about all these different things and tuning it and polishing it. But there was a lot already there when you first uh, came to it. Oh, there was. And it's it was so it was so much fun to to go through that stuff and sort of see what you guys were thinking. And and, you know, Pharaoh, as I was mentioning before, the the questions that you were mentioning, like the questions that you first of all, uh, that one year thing. I, I want to come back to that because that is such a that's such a common Tolkien thing, by the way. Like, there's so many places where you look at the when you really stop and think about like dates that he puts, 
And there's a whole untold story just in the one number, right? Yeah. So, I mean, most people won't even notice. I mean, I bet you that the kind of visual, like, image that people have when they think about, oh, well, the, the, the Balrog woke up and, and, and the dwarves left is, like, a vague picture of, like, dwarves, like, running and screaming as the Balrog comes up and, like, the, you know, and... Cause of Doom was evacuated in about 15 minutes, right? I mean, like that's kind of the, the the picture I think that the kind of unexamined image that that people have. But then you look at it and you're like, no, 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 they lived with the bow, they cohabitated with the Balrog for a year, right? What was that like? What was going on? And so, so taking moments like that and really thinking. What does that mean? Like, not only what was that year like, but what does it tell you about their society? I mean, so anyway, finding those things and and leaning and and the other thing, just to emphasize, uh, Farah, again, that critical question that you ask, because again, it's it's one of those things which is so much fun because it's a question that so many people never think to ask. But once you ask it, it seems like inevitable and you really want to know the answer, right? And the answer is, why does Durin settle at Khazadun, why does he build his and and the answer? There's an obvious answer to that question, like right, like you know, you know, tens of thousands of Tolkien fans could give the answer to that question, but it doesn't answer it. In fact, right, and the answer is well because he saw the crown above his head in the mirror mirror. Yeah, but why, right? He saw the crown and took it as a sign that he was supposed to build his home there. Now, assuming that he was right, <laughs> that it was in fact a sign, right? So let's take as a working hypothesis that he wasn't making stuff up, right? That indeed he did receive a sign that said he was supposed to, why? Why was the sign given? Why this place, right? Why? And you know, that there, that there, there should be an answer to that. But of course the text never whispers an answer to that question. Um, and so, so yeah, so identifying those kinds of questions, which I think the, the story sets up as really compelling questions, and yet we don't know the answer. And so, the, having the opportunity um, to, you know, for you guys as a as a team to discover that, and, and again, I so much loved being a part of those discussions and seeing what what you guys were thinking and 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 continuing discussions of that, um, and how for for players going through um, how they can begin to discover more and more. And as we said, you don't have to pay attention to it, but if you do, there's a lot of really fun uh, uh, stuff to discover in that way. And it, it kind of leads to all these other questions, right? Like, why was the Balrog there in the first place? Like, okay, yeah, he was running away from the fall of Thangorodrum, but there's a lot of mountains to hide under, right? There's a whole bunch of caves he had to choose from among. And that's presumably. exactly, like, that was one of the, like, I wanted to treat Moria as a character, and like, Khazad Doom, the Misty Mountains, that location as a character in itself. Yeah. So what is the story of these mountains? What, how were they first created? We even did kind of, like, go into that, like, you know, we looked into like other books like the Silmarillion and just to, to understand like why these mountains were created, who created these mountains, you know, right. some of that stuff is there. So it's like, what can we pick out of that? And like, how would that have been interpreted by the dwarves? Because yes. now we're, we're, we're telling the story of the mountains, but we're also telling it from the perspective of the dwarves. So what is yes. their belief about that? So what we're saying is might not be true at all, but it is, we're saying it from the dwarven perspective. Like this is potentially what they might've believed. And that's the thing that's so much fun, right? There's a sense, there's, there's a kind of freedom there, right? Because we we know some things from the first age about like what happened and stuff, 
we know it from the Elvish perspective, right? I mean, like, because, the, look, this, everybody knows the Silmarillion was written by elves, right? I mean, that's, exactly. that's um, and I would imagine there would be a number of things in the Silmarillion accounts where dwarves would grumble and say, okay, all right, we can tell you the true story of what was really going on there, right? And so, yeah, being able to have, so even even down to some fundamental um, fun fundamental things like about their own relationship with you know with Aule uh you know the the smith who made them they're gonna have a very you know it's like their whole core theology and understanding of themselves is going to be not only but but again there's this other wonderful thing that Tolkien did right when he said like the dwarves don't tell anybody else so <laughs> it, right. it, it, it's it becomes this uh, not exactly Definitely leaned into that. <laughs> yeah, not a wholly yeah. blank slate, but it means there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of room to move there. Yeah, yeah but that, you play within question... the rules. I'm oh, sorry, yeah. go ahead, Maggie. I was just saying you, you play within the rules to be creative. Yeah, yeah. That question you brought up of why did the Balrog go there? Yeah, um, that that's one that honestly I've been spinning on for a decade. And so when this game came up, I was like, oh, I've got this weird theory about why <laughs> in my own head canon, and I'm going to try this on some experts and see how weird it is. And it was sort of found to be, oh, that could work too. You know, because that, that's the thing. And, and I've, I've, we've, as we've done press for the game, we've been asked a lot of like, is our game canon? Right. And that's an interesting question. And I think and we've talked about, you know, that what is canon? Is yeah. it, could, could anything be canon that isn't, wasn't in the novels? Um, even the Silmarillion was pieced together from notes and wasn't necessarily yes. his like so you know what's canon I, I, I don't know anymore so it, but our game is trying to be consistent with the themes of, of the world and feel like it could be to a one player they might say for me this is canon and I think that's a totally valid question um, or way to go about it yeah like one of the key things that we did as well was create a timeline of what was happening like what was the key moments in dwarven history especially associated with um Khazad-dûm and then uh, going beyond that of going like well what was happening in the world as well like what was happening with the elves and the humans and like the the big wars that were happening and how do because you know especially with the Durans there was a few Durans that we don't know when they were alive we kind of have like a time frame of when they could have been alive right. but it's not really specified so we had to kind of go in and be like well if we are creating these statues and we have like our own um you know vision of how these um the, the, the durins would have looked like and behaved how does it tie in to what's happening in the world how can we make it more consistent with the things that we don't know how can we make it consistent with the things that we do know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's um yeah, because the, the the flip side of the of the argument that you know dwarves keep these things to themselves is that when you set a game in a place where it's only dwarves, what do they say to each other? You know what I mean? That also comes to well, what do we do with the dwarven language yes. as well? You know, it's like this is a, they would be talking to each other in in Kustal, and so this is something that we need to really kind of bring together and and turn into a, a feature. Yes, yes. Um, so. One of the things that uh, Maggie and I have often talked about as a fundamental and very often overlooked element of adaptation, like when people are looking at film adaptations and comparing them to a book, one of um, one of one of one of the things that Maggie has taught me to think about is that people almost always overlook the fact that one of the biggest, most fundamental differences between those two stories is the fact that 
one of them was written by a person and the other one is a really complex um, team of, you know, dozens of different creative people working many different angles and all coming together uh, in order to and like the different ways in which those things come together and combine have can have a radical impact on some of the things which seem to viewers as like fundamental adaptation decisions. Right. Um, uh, obviously, with video game production, you're in a similar world is, is why uh, fun to have the three of you here and of course i know that there were there were you know other people who are working on this as well um talk about that about how the um this the the, the kind of team approach how this is not just like a you know a kind of a single author adapted story or something like that but the ways in which uh you guys kind of were 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 working together and how the how the team production happened uh, that's probably a good question for Bradley, I think. Uh, yeah, I think um, I, I touched a little bit on this in the, the response to, to Maggie's question. We we're talking about, like, kind of where do you start? But I think, you know, um, in the role as art director, I think one of your first jobs is to inspire the team. Um, before you can inspire players, you need to kind of get everybody on board. Everyone's going to bring their own ideas to the thing. And, and many, most of those ideas are going to be really go good ideas that can find a home, but sometimes they'll be conflicting. And, and you, you know, you, that's the team building and the, the collaborative process is kind of hammering things down um, and really everyone understanding, like, what are the bones of this, this world? What are the bones of the game? You know, what makes the game fun and interesting? Um, so the first job is to actually, before I can even inspire the team, I have to inspire the artists. Um, so getting really talented concept artists. Of course, when you're working on a Lord of the Rings game, it can be easier to find people who are already right from the go. You know, I don't have to try to to get them to buy into Middle Earth. Like they're already there. They're already there. Um, but then, you know, I, I have to you know narrow it down to like what are the what are the problems that you can really dive into, and get get some get the best and the most out of them, and then you know use that you leverage that to then inspire the team, and then you get you know there's like an audio texture to it. And then everyone can kind of experience the vibe of the game just visually and through sound and through storytelling. And then that's where everything starts to take shape. Um, I mean, it's a constant collaborative work is, is a challenge and it's, there's a skill to, to it for sure that we all learn, you know, over the, the course of doing this. But I think um, that's, that's where you start. You start with that inspiration. That makes sense. I mean, you're trying to get everybody to have a singular vision with a ton of different brains that look at things and think of things in very different ways. So having that kind of imagery behind the people who are creating the space makes a whole lot of sense to me. And then you fill in the blanks. Yeah. Very yeah. yeah. Within our team, we had like a lot of people who love these stories, you know, that love the books. And everyone like at least from a lore perspective like everyone was bringing a lot to the table and our job was to just make sure like yeah it makes sense for the lore it makes sense for our story but you know we also did have like a lot of limitations just because the nature of video games and um just the resources that we have the time that we had like you know, there's a lot of things i would have loved to have included and we just didn't have time like that's just the nature of something like a project like this but um so my like my, my what I tried to take on was like you know that's a, like if somebody had an idea it's like that's fantastic let's try to find a way to include it mm -hmm. and like um you know we everyone is so skillful and experienced in what they're doing on this team as well like there was that trust of like they will figure it out and how to include it as well because like you know there's expertise that I don't have in terms of making video games that they do and it's just like 
there's a lot of storytelling that happens just through gameplay, through environments, through songs and you know so many like music and just sounds even you know there's there's so many aspects of storytelling that came through that you know i didn't even touch but it just it fits the world and it's i it makes it, that world building aspect it makes it so wonderful and brilliant yeah um so just to pass through a couple quick questions uh, mrs manrique was just asking um what's your guys favorite part of the game and why is it beer drinking <laughs> <laughs> Uh, man, the beer stuff was fun. Um, that was one of the things was a, a core value of the game was do everything the dwarfiest way possible. <laughs> and so that's when I think we were, we were I don't know if we were talking or when we were brainstorming, but it was like, oh, you know what it was? It was one of our one of our um, gameplay uh, engineers early on. And, and when we were making our first sort of gameplay demonstration um, had put in um, health potions. And I, I had this reaction to it. And then I thought, I was like, why was I reacting to it? I was like, they're not going to carry a potion around. And then we're like, well, what would they carry? Well, they'd carry a beer. <laughs> they'd have an ale. And yeah. so that's where we, then we started to go, like, how far can we push this? Uh, <laughs> and and we, we, we pushed it pretty far. Yeah. Um, and I, I love the fact that there's there, there there is not only social drinking, but there are specific mechanics for social drinking songs uh, in, in the game. Like that's yeah. Yeah. It does seem that there's the, there was a lot of really fun. Um, I get on just like kind of the 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 fun and playfulness of of especially of multi uh, person play and stuff to, to you know, that that just that that seems like a really um, sort of apt spirit for the game in that way yeah one of the things that was really important to us you know, the, these games have a certain the genre has a certain set of mechanics and rules um and they typically have very hard they're, they're they can be very brutal uh they can be very grinding and we, we wanted to be true to that and i think we can still continue to develop the game to get further and further down the line for the the genre of survival crafting but it was also important to us that we wanted to make a game that just had a lot of joy in it. Mm -hmm. And that's where like drinking, the the singing, the dancing, the decoration of your base, the the fact that you don't just make food and take it with you, you have a meal. So there was a lot of things in there that we wanted to layer in just that, that uh, uh, put a whole coat of paint of just joy across everything that we could. Still have a game with stakes and danger and difficulty, but we felt like if anyone was going to have fun in the dark of Moria, in the the face of this danger would be the dwarves and so that fit with the dwarfiness we wanted yeah great um the other uh question i wanted to pass through quick was uh, a question from uh from varking runesong um who's the person i've always thought of ever since i was started working on the game that like this is the video game designed for him personally yeah. um uh but uh anyways varking was asking um uh, you guys have already done tons of updates and fixes, uh, you know, already within, you know, just the first couple of weeks of the game being out. Do you guys sleep? Like, is that, is, is that <laughs> not much these days? Uh, no. You have a hearth and a bedroll. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I need more, more, more black diamonds. Um, and we've got another big update coming. Uh, we've got our PlayStation 5 release in the first week of December, and that will coincide with another big update. And that's where we're really planning on doing. We heard the community loud and clear, more quality of life when it comes to inventory management, sorting, auto deposit, things like that. And those are going to be in that update. We wish we could have had it at launch, but we're going to have it there. Um, we're making the end of the game stronger. 
uh, we felt like it needed to be even more experiential. So we're we're pouring a lot of gasoline on that part of the game. Um, and then we're going to turn around and do another update and then another update. So um, part of, I think, the advantage is we've got a really motivated team. We've got uh, fans that seem to really like it. and We want to just keep making it better for them. Will they will people be able to cross play between consoles and the PC? Uh, not at launch on the PS5. Okay, not at launch on the PS5. Okay, um, and is the uh, is the Xbox launch? Um, Xbox will be next year. That'll be next year. Okay, okay, all right, cool, cool. Um, and some people were asking about DLC and stuff as well, and I know that that's. I know it's hard to think too much about that in the midst of update time, <laughs> patch and update season, but um, but I know that there 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 definitely are thoughts in that direction. Yeah, and and you know when we talk about DLC, we're that's pretty far down in terms, especially if you're meaning like paid DLC, like whole new content. That's pretty far down the line. We've got a lot of stuff we want to do that we're not planning on charging for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cool, awesome, uh, great. Well, I know uh, uh, you guys have to go. We've you've been very generous with your time. So glad that you guys could join us here today. Um, maybe we can have another conversation, uh, 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 you know, down the road. You know, yeah, this is just scratching the surface, guys. We exactly. could do this for hours. <laughs> we yeah. could too. We could too. Yeah, absolutely. We need to have a spoiler, like a spoiler tag one, so we can get into the yes. big bad and yes. why Aule, why there. There's so much fun stuff that we that that we got into that we loved. That's it. exciting parts for us. Yeah, well, we're all about close reading and stuff. So I mean, if yes. we could get like a single image or a single you know space and just do that for twelve hours, Corey, right. something important? like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, and even just thinking thinking in more detail about just kind of zooming in on one example yeah. of the stuff that you guys were talking about. Like, here's the foundation. Here's what we know from the text. Right now, let's look at in detail. You know, some of the things that were done with that. You know, where where we took that and how those two things are related. Um, to really begin to again open up more. Um, it, it's one of our goals in this whole series, this Other Minds and Hands show, is to kind of, in some ways, like demystify the adaptation yeah. process. Really, kind of be thinking through how you get from one to the other, how you relate to, you know, how you are trying to tell your own story and how that story that you're telling relates to Tolkien's story. So, um, uh, so anyway, we'll let you guys go. So uh, viewers, you can hang out. Maggie and I are going to stick around and talk a little bit more, but I want to, but I want to take the opportunity to thank again and say goodbye to our guests. Thank you guys. Really, really appreciate thank it. Look forward to another conversation later on. Hopefully when you guys have had a chance to sleep a little bit more. <laughs> Thanks for having us. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Very good. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Excellent. Okay. Well, that so. wasn't fun at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. There's so much, so much to talk about. Um, I know. I mean, that was absolutely lovely, but it really felt like first date where I'm like, we need to, like, get into some deeper stuff with them, don't we? Because they know their stuff. This would be fun. They seem really thoughtful. You yes. know them well. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, no, they were so great to work with. Um, it was really neat being, as you know, as as uh, John Paul was saying, I was brought in, you know, relatively late, um, and just kind of going through the 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 stuff that they had and a bunch of the timelines and details and things and making some suggestions and um, it was great. I mean, there's 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 a lot I haven't um, there's a lot I haven't seen. There's a lot that I don't know about, you know, in the story, or, you know, in the game, but. Um, but even the like 
bringing you in late thing, you know, like sometimes you hear about that, especially industry of like, oh, they brought him in because this was getting messed up and these people were overreacting and we were worried about the fan reaction with them. It was so much more strategic. They obviously had lore masters. They knew their stuff. They could do the baseline and then bring it to a higher level lore master you know that's that's a really clever strategy it was it was great it was great and and like i said there was um something someone was asking me this weekend they're like okay so like were there any like howlers like you know like was there anything that you saw on the on the game when they showed it to you that you were like no don't yeah. do that oh, yeah. and, 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 and no no there was not okay. <laughs> there was not it strike me as a team that would have that no, no no i was really excited about a lot of the things i mean i i um, whenever we were um, uh, working on it, you know, in the, the the meetings that we had, you know, like a year ago and stuff, it was, um, and mostly it was just, it was just like this escalating thing where like a lot of the questions they were asking and the things that they were thinking about made me think about other stuff. And they were like, oh, we didn't think about that. We could do this other stuff too. And then we would, get, you know, a lot of the, the kind of the deep lore of the game, the stuff that I won't talk about because even if you've been playing it, you probably haven't gotten there yet. Um, is uh, again like down to like the first stage stuff and and the answers to those questions about like what why was Durin called to set up his his stronghold here um but um anyway so that that's a lot of that stuff was uh, was was stuff that really kind of grew and, and and developed in those in those conversations that we were having yeah. it was it was it was it was really fun and a question I meant to ask them, but you might know too, when they do the releases on different platforms, does the game change at all? Or are they releasing the current version on that platform? There will be, I mean, I am, I, and here I'm just, I, I mean, I, I know sure. nothing about the technical side, but just based on what I've seen in other games, you know, uh, that where I've seen both, you know, platform and or b- both platforms. Um, usually like the, there'll be visual differences and stuff because of just the way that like the, you know they work um but um uh i i i hope and believe that the core like you know elements of like the details in the story of the game will be will be consistent across them um but um phil uh, phil is asking um was there anything that made me go wow i never thought of it that way the 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 thing i was referring to the the six duran statues that they had um the the element of the story that really kind of came to life to me in a new way when we were talking, when I was looking at the stuff that they were doing, is the actual history of Casa Doom itself. I find that it's easy as a reader of the text to kind of freeze, to have this like um, monolithic, uh, uh, you know, static concept of ancient of ancient Casa Doom, right? You know, the great civilization of the dwarves, and not think about, you know rise and fall and variations that are happening within the course of the thousands of years, you know, that, uh, that this place is, has been around. Um, and so the ways in which they were, the ways in which they were teasing out the, um, the, the kind of ebb and flow of the history of Casa Doom, um, and the thoughtfulness with which they were, as Pharaoh was explaining, rooting that in the external events, um, you know, kind of correlating that with the external events that were going on outside. Um, and then, of course, like it's going to surprise none of you that, um, you know, when when John Paul was then talking about how that was paralleling stanza by stanza with Gimli's song, I was like, yes, a thousand times yes. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it was that was that was it was really cool. 
That's fun. But that's the energy you want to see, you know, like when you see us getting all like fangirly about it and you see them kind of responding to it and the levels just get more and more excited. That's the vibe you kind of want your story to exist in because it has this baseline of trust that all right, whatever you're doing is based on something really pure. So let's do the best that we can with it. Yep. Yep. Um, no, it was it was neat. It was neat. So it's uh, I mean, I think it's going to it's a it's a I, I'm hoping uh, over time that we can do some fun things with um, uh, with the, 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 there's a lot to be, uh, uh, you know, to be unpacked and discovered and and discussed from what's going on there. And it would be fun to um, uh, I'm uh, uh, I have a, you know, fantasy of uh you know doing some stuff where we can kind of i think there's there's some there's some things that we could do um it would be really fun to get this to get some of this game world up on the screen and walk around in it is what is what would be really fun to do um and uh, And really even just some of those simple things like if we did just look at the durance and talk about that just this this same thing we've done in, in so many other episodes, the visual representation of a text and how you can tell a story in a different way. So mm-hmm. gameplay is so different. And I love what Faro was saying of like revealing the story through discovery, not yeah. just in telling. You don't need tons of narrative because you're going to have somebody explore in a different way to get that story out to you. Yeah. But yeah, that would be so fun to go through a certain scene with them and just see that process mm-hmm. field. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. No, it would. So we, we may do, um, I was talking with, um, some of the, the, not, not just, uh, not just the development crew, but some of the, the folks at, uh, North beach games, which is the production, uh, company that's, uh, uh, that's, that's, that's helping with the game. Um, you know, that's publishing the game. Um, anyways, talking with them a bit about, um, to think about some, stuff that we can do together um so we 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 might do some streaming and discussion and stuff later on so there'll be more opportunities to kind of dig into um um yeah phil says how about getting it up on the really big screen well i I have i have notions on that subject Mm -hmm. um uh yeah i have i have notions we'll see we'll see what's possible but um it is an avenue that is being explored for sure um yeah yeah um but uh but yeah so i I think it's it's i've been really excited about this game and of course you know the um for me working on the game the the part of course the with which i have had like no connection and because i mean almost all my connection had been like you know story treatments and you know narrative and and images and things like that um so i was working with fair and i was working with bradley mostly but of course like the actual gameplay elements of it right i'm like I, I, you know uh just like hoping that that is that works and again it's another thing it's just another example um maggie of of like the the kind of the team thing right just like yeah. you can have um you know as we've all seen examples of right you can have a film that's a brilliant concept an amazing cast and then it just flops because either the directing's not good or the writing's not good or like there's you know there can be any kind of um 
if there's any sort of disconnect or, or any like major weakness in any of those areas or, or, um, or again, like how many, how many times you're like, man, that film was horrible, but this, but the screenplay was amazing. Right. You know, or like, anyway, just like all these kinds of things, there's so many in order for a game like this to be a successful adaptation, right. To do what it's doing successfully, all these things have to work. So not just thinking about, the lore and the story and the art and the visuals and everything, but the, the, the gameplay, you know, and the mechanics and, and all of this stuff have to also work together to make it really, um, uh, to make it really compelling. Um, and so, so yeah, that, and that was for that. I've just kind of like had my fingers crossed, you know, just like wishing them the best and really hoping that everything comes together because I was like, man, everything I've seen is really fun. Like this is really yeah. exciting. Um, and I really hope that um, it, you know, hope and trust it's going to come together in a way that's going to be, uh, that's going to, you know, lead to a really effective uh, and, uh, and good experience for folks. Um, but, it's been interesting yeah. to see the reaction. Cause I mean, I haven't gone too deep onto the interwebs, but it seems with most of the fan communities, it's been really positive. Mm -hmm. It's been mediocre with some of the other like big name reviews, but to be honest, that doesn't really surprise me because that's kind of their job. Like they're right. supposed to look at something and be like, oh, this one isn't that great because of, but right, right. You know, the people they're, they're pitching and playing it to seem to be having an awfully good time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's what I've been hearing too. I have not gotten to play it much myself yet uh but i'm i'm i am looking forward to that uh i'm i'm uh, i'm playing i mean i don't have too much time to play <laughs> it's my other it's my other issue but well, uh, and i live with an xbox obsessive so i figure as soon as it's on that platform it's right. going to be in this house so <laughs> right right exactly so yeah. um yeah but um uh, but no, it's, it, and you know, I, it's something I would like to do more, just as we were, we were talking about how it would be fun to kind of zoom in and do some close reading of particular moments and particular passages and how they're doing, they're making that adaptation work in the game. Um, cool. it also would be fun to kind of back up a little bit, uh, and look at the why, like, because one of the issues that was kind of, I mean, it, it came up at various points in our conversation today, um, but would be interesting to kind of look at more systematically is adapting for video games in general. Like what are the, um, you know, many of the challenges and things, you know, like what is it, what does it mean? What, what are the priorities, you know, and how does that, how does that differ from, there are a lot of similarities between adapting for a video game and adapting for a film or TV show. Um, but, um, but thinking more about those sort of genre differences and the significance of those, like how that really factors into um, the kind of adaptation pro project that you undertake and the kind of adaptation product that you bring forward. Um, there are definitely significant differences there. So um, anyway, so it, it would be fun to think about that. In fact, you know, it would be awesome. It would be awesome someday to have like a, a panel with a bunch yeah. of, well, you know, like get, uh, get John Paul Dumont from Return to Moria and get, uh, like Chris Pearson from Lotro and, and, mm. you know, maybe a couple other people together and, uh, uh, just talk about that, you know, Tolkien video games and, you know, no, that's what we should do in front of the big screen and then have you guys play a bit and film that. <laughs> yeah. Fun. Yeah. That would, that would be, be really fun. cool. 
that would be fun. Uh, anyway, yeah. So lots of lots of stuff to um, uh, to Play. do moving forward. Um, and um, and I do agree, Druid's Fire. Um, there is a lot of differences depending on what kind of game it is. Yeah, absolutely. Just as I mean, obviously there are different considerations and there are different challenges in like doing completely different genres of film as well, right? I mean, so like to some extent, there's a parallel there. But I do agree that the kind of lateral differences between totally different genres of game, um, I think in some ways are, are likely to be um, somewhat more like uh, more prof- more more profound, more fundamental, yeah, it, perhaps. It's probably closest to like different platforms that we've been talking about, like, you know, a 10 one hour series. Right five series is very different than a 90 minute feature film like right right yeah you're going to engage with that story incredibly differently but gameplay is so different and has such a unique power that it puts you in the space so having that that player interaction i think is so powerful narratively yeah uh, that that's a really fun way to look at story adaptation and totally you know it's going to completely depend on what kind of game you're playing if you are actually stepping into a role and building yourself as a dwarf that's quite different than playing as gimli right right exactly exactly um yeah i think back to like some of the like film spinoff console games that like I remember my nephews playing uh, you know after the Peter Jackson films right where you're just basically playing the characters going through the plot of the film right yeah. and that's a totally different kind of undertaking than right. uh, you know than, than certainly than and crafting and discovering and... Yeah. yeah yeah exactly um, yeah. but yeah I love my favorite. I think my favorite moment of that whole interview was at the very beginning because I don't think they ever said it to me in exactly that way before. I had heard that before. That like so, s- survival crafting game is the official like name of the genre of of game that 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 they were building. And so the idea that they sat down and were like, well, we're going to do a survival crafting game in Middle Earth, and they're like, both survival and crafting just were like dwarves, obviously. Right. I, just, <laughs> I, I love that. Um, you know, it wasn't the, even an aha moment. It was right. a it was duh. a dumb moment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah, uh, very fitting. I like it. Yeah, we definitely have to do more video games. There's so much to talk about there. Um, yeah, fun fact. Yeah, that would be that would be a lot of good stuff. So, um, let me let me segue for a moment because there's some some important uh, sort of announcements to talk about. I didn't want to take up the time that we because we had a we had a limited time uh, with our special guests today, but. Um, I, uh, I wanted to, because today is the first day of Signum's fall fundraising campaign. So I wanted to, uh, I wanted to, to make sure to mention that for a couple different reasons. Of course, the primary reason is just to remind you, first of all, to thank everybody um, who has donated to support Signum. Uh, Signum, of course, is a, uh, is a, a tax-exempt institution, um, and we're really grateful to everybody who donates to support our work. Um, we just we couldn't do it without you guys. Um, and if you haven't had a chance to donate, now is the perfect time because our fall fundraising uh, campaign has begun. One of the things that um, we always uh, love to do during fall fundraising campaign is give away. It's like a, the time to like celebrate our community and the people who support us. Um, so here's the thing that we're going to do. We are going to um, uh, we're going to we're going to do a weekly giveaway. Uh, just to sort of celebrate 
everybody who is uh, uh, who is keeping up with other minds and hands. Um, and so what's going to happen is uh, every week we're going to do a drawing and we're going to give away a choice of three prizes. Okay, so here's here's how here's how it's going to work. Um, we're going to have a we're going to have a form. Uh, there's a very uh, there's a very simple form. Let me um, uh, I'll, I'll get the I'll get the link here. Okay, here is the link, um, and I'm going to post it in the chat. Okay, there's the link to our other minds and hands form. It's very simple. It's just like your name and email. Really, there's nothing else to it. Um, so next week, um, if you would like to enter into the drawing um, uh, in celebration of other minds and hands, just Fill your name and address on that form. And next week, uh, in, during next week's session, we will do a drawing for everybody who has filled out the form between now and uh, and then. Okay. So this is to be inclusive, not just for people who are here live, but to be inclusive for people. Because I know that many people um, follow along with, with other minds and hands, but listen or watch asynchronously because they can't be with us at this at this day and time. Um, so, so everybody... Uh, can participate. So just go in and uh, uh, put your name and email and we'll enter. Now, what are the prizes you ask? Um, we're going to be giving away a choice of three things and they're pretty cool things. Um, you can get either your choice of um, a, uh, a free ticket to one of our regional moots or to a flight in our space program. So you can get a flight to a one month class in our space program. Or you can get a, uh, a one of our, um, uh, our anytime audit archives. That is one of the archived lecture series uh, from one of our graduate courses, one of our MA courses. So you can get an anytime audit recording, uh, a set of anytime audit recordings. You can get uh, a month of live participation in our space program, or you can get admission to a regional moot. We will do a drawing and give the person the choice of those three things. Um, and uh, for those of you who are watching or listening, the, the, the link to this will be in the description of the YouTube recording. So if you're listening to this, like on the Twitch recording or something like that, or on the podcast feed, go to our YouTube channel uh, and find this episode, episode 57 of Other Minds and Hands, and the link will be in the description there. All right. So uh, those are the prizes you'll be entering a drawing for. Um, uh, so just go ahead and fill in. Just put, put, put your name and email in that uh, form anytime between now and next week, and we will do a drawing next week. We're doing this weekly uh, throughout the fundraising campaign. I have an admin thing that I meant to talk to you about beforehand, but we're going to do it live on here. Okay. Is I have the Lovecraft class lecture next week this time. So we might have to think about timing. <laughs> right. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. So so next week, that reminds me of the segue to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which hey. is next week. So next week, we're going to return to our opening series, right? And we were we were going to do, we were going to continue Jane Austen and do Emma next? Yes. Right? Yes. Okay. Um so we're going to do our Emma discussion, but we will we'll do it at a we'll do it at a different time. It might just be a smidge later. I can't remember. I think class starts. I think it's nine to ten thirty. So I think it's the exact slot. So we'll see. Okay. Okay. So we may have to. Well, we have to shift to a different day or something. All right. So stay tuned for that. Um, we'll 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 post uh, the new time on uh, uh, Signum's social media, and we'll we'll try to make. But sure appropriately, that I am talking about Lovecraft's adaptations. Oh, so it's go. it's a very fitting class. <laughs> there we go. Cool. 
Awesome. So yeah, we'll make sure to we'll make sure to let people know. Which, so next week's will be at an at an as yet undetermined special time. Um, we'll decide soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll we'll figure that out. Um, awesome. This also reminds me of uh, one. Of, so um, the 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 all of the forms. So when we're collecting people's names and emails for uh, from for the drawing, um, at the end. So we're the, we're going to be concluding the fall fundraising campaign at our annual Webathon event, which will happen on Saturday, uh, December 9th. And on that day, we will do a grand prize drawing of everyone who has filled out the form for the whole during the whole campaign. So we'll have like everyone who's 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 done it at any point in the next like five weeks um, for a grand prize. Uh, uh, an Other Minds and Hands grand prize. And the grand prize for Other Minds and Hands is you get to name the topic of our discussion. You can, you can, we will, we will take, like, with, you can suggest we may, we may negotiate, <laughs> depending if you, if you land on something that's way outside the familiarity of both of us, we may negotiate a bit. But you can, you, we, we will give you the power to suggest to us a specific topic or a specific uh, work uh, or pairing that you would like to see us discuss in other minds and hands. So we will, uh, we will, we will let you determine one of our, uh, uh, one of our discussion topics. That's that's sort of the the grand prize from the drawing that we will do uh, on December 9th at our Webathon event. So, anyway, um, lots of fun stuff happening and coming up. Um, so for Emma next time, um, did we decide we we're going to throw in Clueless as an extra? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so we're going to have. So we're going to have four. Then we're going to have the opening of the book. We're going to have the opening to the Gwyneth Paltrow. We're going to have the opening to the recent one of like two years ago, like the 2020, 2021, was it? Yeah, and I feel like I saw it on Netflix, but I might be lying. But yeah, it's very recent. Yeah, yeah. And then um, we're going to do, and and then and also up. Clueless as well. Yeah. Um, so we will be looking at the openings of all four of those texts. And Larry, we have not discussed Dune yet. I think that's where we're going to go next after, um, after we... Uh, we could, we could, of course, continue with Jane Austen. I mean, of course, Jane Austen is not only really fun to discuss, but also, of course, has been so heavily adapted. We could do it for every single work of Jane Austen. Um, but and also, uh, there's limited text, so there's also kind of a nice little bookend, so to speak. Right. Of, hmm. Right. Exactly. But we'll probably after Emma, we'll probably move on. Maybe do Dune uh, at that point, and then. I feel like we need a Christmas something in there, though. Uh, I'll see what I yeah. As we get yeah. closer to Christmas, we can we mm. can think of. Of course, we. I loved Christmas Carol last that last time. That was really fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we, we can think about that. We can think about yeah. um, other options we can do. We also talked about the possibility of doing Little Women as well, oh. which, which I know is one of your favorites. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That would hey, be a lot of fun. Watership Down too, with the recent oh, God, Netflix I've heard one. That's about eleven. And the oh yeah yeah anyway. <laughs> Um, we also have to put an eventual limit on our opening series because what what we want to do after we do the openings is to go back and do some um, some additional uh, close reading comparisons of these same texts. So having built this sort of body of texts uh, to then go back and 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 look over them again. So yeah, anyway. and to pick like specific moments, you know, of of Darcy and Lizzie's confrontation and how they depict that in different ways in different mm -hmm. scenes. Mm -hmm. Yeah fun to do that yeah 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 excellent all right 
Very good. Um, well, so again, pay attention. Uh, be on the lookout for announcements about the uh, the move of our time and possibly day. We'll we'll let you guys know uh, for when we're going to meet next week. But next week we will come back to discussion of Jane Austen adaptations and then um, uh, continuing on to to some other uh, uh, you know fandoms and 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 topics after that. We'll think about Christmas stuff. I'm not brainstorming Christmas stuff in my head, but we'll we'll get there. Like the Grinch is where I went first because there's been so many good adaptations of that, and Doctor Seuss is kind of a fun place to start. That's a great suggestion. I love yeah, the Grinch that's... suggestion. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. Yeah, that would actually be really interesting. To, uh, also, to see when the original text is not only a children's book but a picture book. Right. Yeah. There's so much um, there's a totally different relationship then that's going to come in because there there is unlike many of the things in the written texts, um, there is so much more expectation, visual expectation. Yeah. 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 Um, oh, very cool. OK. Yep. We'll okay. we'll we'll we will think about that. Very good. OK. Thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining us. This was a lot of fun. Looking forward to more discussions with the Return of Mario folks uh, soon. And uh, we will we'll be back again next week sometime or other. <laughs> we'll let you know soon. All right. Very good. Thanks, everybody. Bye now.